every single marketer and every single brand should be attempting to earn a disproportionate share of conversation. If you work for an organization where they say, bring us a chart that goes up and to the right, you have a challenge. Half the money I spend on advertising is wasted. The trouble is, I don't know which half. I am here to inspire you, to excite you, to motivate you, to transform you, to energize you. Hello, and welcome to Demand Gen Visionaries. This episode features an interview with Anthony Canada, CMO of Hopin, an event technology platform that recently garnered a $7.75 billion valuation. Anthony started out as marketing employee number five at Hopin and has since scaled the team to over 48 people in the last eight months. He is a seasoned marketing leader who's known for fueling growth and previously served as CMO of Front and Gainsight. On this episode, Anthony takes us behind the scenes of Hopin's explosive growth, how he and his team are trying to redefine webinars, and why he believes every company needs to start acting like a media company. But before we begin, here's a brief word from our sponsor. Today's episode is brought to you by our friends at Qualified.com. If you are a B2B marketer who has always dreamed of knowing when a qualified prospect is on your site and being able to talk to them instantly, now you can. Learn more at Qualified.com. So please enjoy this interview between Anthony Canada, CMO of Hopin, and your host, Ian Faison. Welcome to Demand Gen Visionaries. I'm Ian Faison, CEO of Caspian Studios. And today I am joined by special guest, Anthony, how are you? I'm good. How are you? I am doing great. I am super excited to talk about all things events, about hopping, about everything in between, your background. Um, so let's get started. What was your first job in marketing? Yeah, it's kind of crazy, come to think of it. And that's why no one's ever asked me that. My first job in marketing was the head of marketing at Gainsight. So I'd, I'd had a pretty a short career at that time in, in tech, had a few jobs, but they were always in the sales, BD, product side of the house. I thought I was going to be in product for the rest of my career. And then Nick, the CEO of Gainsight, was getting on board there and said, hey, we want to learn more about what we're doing. And by the way, how do you feel about marketing? So really a lot of my 10,000 hours I've gained in marketing, as it were, started from the head of marketing building that that business out and haven't looked back since. And so flash forward to today, tell us about your current role. Yeah, so I'm the CMO at a company called Hopin. We are really trying to redefine the future of shared experiences, everything from virtual events to how we think about gathering back in person, how do we extend the reach of those in-person engagements through hybrid strategies to try to make those events more inclusive and drive a much wider audience into our event programs. We've got streaming, which we think is a big way to help companies, help brands or influencers kind of connect with their audiences using social media platforms and some different kind of network effects there. But the core of it all, we believe that our reason for existing is to help make the world feel closer. And especially as we think about the last two years and how there has been geographic barriers for our ability to actually connect and get closer. And for a lot of folks, that's not due to a pandemic. Geography is a limiter for opportunity globally, as is different financial reasons or physical health ailments, whatever the case is. And so all of the products, all of the things that we're bringing to market are based on this premise of helping brands, helping communities, helping just people feel closer to the ideas and the, the communities and the inspiration that they care about. 
Let's get to our first segment, the trust tree. With the knowledge you've been given, you are now on the inside of what I like to call the circle of trust. What, I thought we were in the trust tree with, in the nest, are we not? This is where we can go and feel honest and trusted, and you can share those deepest, darkest marketing secrets. <laughs> to start off with, who are your customers? Who are you selling to? It sort of depends on, on, on which product, but at the end of the day, it's people that are planning either external events or internal events. And so when we think external, it's like corporate event planners, it's event marketers within you know, organizations, a lot of different size and scopes, but these are people in terms of company profile, but these are people that effectively are trying to create experiences to engage their communities. On the internal event side, obviously we think about all of us working from home now, and we think this is either going to be the default setting moving forward, or we're going to have this hybrid flex employment type of motion. How do we keep our teams connected and engaged and pulled into the broader vision of what we're building? We do things like all hands meetings, workshops, even team socials, all these types of things. And so that buyer tends to be kind of all over the place, either within the internal comms team. In some cases, there's like an office vibes or a people team or we're even seeing this this new emerging kind of head of remote role. But ultimately, whoever is responsible for hosting internal programs at the company level, or even at the team level, sales ops for sales kickoffs, let's say, and those types of things. So I think those are the two dimensions, at least for our core business in the event space, that we spent a lot of time thinking about. And you mentioned, obviously, some of the company size agnostic a little bit there, type of experience agnostic. Seems like this person could be a small person on a, not a small person, a person on a small team of a huge company, of a section of a company, of one part of a team. And it seems like it could go the the gamut there, but it's anyone who is trying to create an, an awesome event experience. Yeah. Yeah, totally. It could be small community organizers and folks that typically are on the meetup.coms and those types of, of places to kind of bring their community together. If Procter & Gamble is a customer in the United Nations, some of these obviously much, much larger scale organizations. There's also agencies. There's, there's the folks whose full-time job as a services business, professional services organization, is to build these programs for, for companies. And so that's also a big key persona within the, the ecosystem for us. And what does that buying committee look like? Who's, who's signing the dotted line on this thing? Yeah, ultimately it's going to roll up to the CMO. I think we see that across most of our use cases. On the internal side, I think the chief people officer, the CIO, even in some cases, the adoption pattern for some of that buying behavior is more bottoms up as, as it currently stands today. But ultimately it's the CMO. If you're a smaller organization, it might be the CEO or president. We're finding that, especially in the agency side or other places where there's no chief executive in marketing, the owner operator will, will end up signing. So within the typical B2B environment, at least, I think CMOs, there's the potentially the VP of brand or corporate marketing or something that might sit in between them. But that's sort of the decision-making tree as we see it. No, I, I think in general... What's been kind of fascinating about the last two years is that everyone, to some extent, has become an event planner. <laughs> like we've all had to go online and find ways to connect and feel closer to each other. And so it's, it's fascinating as we're moving from this sort of like reactive demand capture motion to a demand creation motion and really modeling a lot of our personas and who we're, we're going after. We're seeing a lot of evolution in, in the, just the go-to-market strategy in general. 
But I think at the end of the day, there's pretty clear buying centers around event professionals within companies. And typically rolling up the CMO could be to the president or owner operator of, of the business. And on the internal side, it's either business line managers that want to host an internal event, like a sales ops person or something like those lines, or the chief people officer or CIO, whoever's running, whoever's buying Slack, right? Whoever's buying the company-wide internal enablement tools tends to be the buyer for the internal use case. And how do you organize your marketing team to go acquire those type of accounts? So I joined about eight months ago and I was employee number in, in marketing five, the fifth marketer. Fast forward eight months, there's 48 of us. One of the first things I did, the only way we would have reasonably scaled that fast was to create some type of method to the madness, some kind of sub-disciplines within marketing. So we organized really, if I kept it simplistic, four buckets. The first is brand. And so brand team is everything from brand strategy work that defines who we are, what we stand for, to brand partnerships, to some of our awareness-oriented campaigns and, and those types of things to PR and comms and that whole effort that's been a big part of a, our business, which already in two years has been pretty acquisitive. We've raised a ton of money. So I think PR has been a big lever for, for the company. The next group is corporate marketing. So I organize that in really three main areas. One is our own events and experiential marketing. Two is our customer marketing. And three is our partner marketing, which is all under one leader there. The third is product marketing, which is your prototypical product marketing. And there's the technical side of product marketing that's doing the launches, the feature level messaging and persona analysis, that type of stuff. And then the more sales go to market oriented product marketing, that's building the sales decks and doing the win loss analysis and, and, and that sort of thing. And I think for, for the purposes of this audience, saving the best for last demand gen, we actually call it revenue marketing at Hopin. There's a few reasons for that. In addition to owning the pipeline target across all segments, across all products, across all regions, all within that one organization, they also own the self-serve number, which is increasingly getting added, at least in some cases, to, to the charter of demand teams. So our ability to drive revenue is super helpful tactically in terms of how we set goals, but also philosophically. We don't want to just hit a pipeline target and then sales, let's say, misses the number. There's no there's no glory in, in celebrating that. And so we feel accountable, not just to creating pipeline, but creating pipeline that converts and ends up hitting the board. Within that sales to marketing relationship and what you just talked about, do you have an inside team? How, how does that work? Mm -hmm. Yep. So we have a SDR and BDR team. So we have a VP of sales development effectively that has an inbound team and an outbound team. We work very closely with them. We're kind of tied at the hip. I think together we make this kind of like one pipeline team. So we're organized globally. I mean, there's quite a bit of a footprint in the US and EMEA. And then we're, we have a small but growing team in Asia Pacific and all sort of focused, specialized across some of our different products. But yeah, I think that they're Historically, at Gainsight, at Front, those were a core part of the marketing team. I think at Hopin, given a lot of what we're building, going from zero to one on everything in marketing, including sales and everything else, we've kind of specialized that focus as well. But we view them as honestly a, a extension of our team. And then people can, they can go to the site, 
they can, by the way, go to hopin.com for our listeners if you want to go check it out right now. So they can go to hopin.com. They can check out pricing that you can sign up for free. So there's a freemium model there. There's your starter and your growth packages, and then your business and your enterprise where mm-hmm. you'd, you'd have to talk to sales. How do you think about those two different motions, the mm-hmm. SMB motion versus the enterprise motion for Hopin? Yeah. Philosophically, I think the idea is we want to let people buy however they want to buy. And, and you'll, you'll see a lot more from us here as we develop this it's sort of a buyer experience priority as a demand team where we don't want to just be aggressively driving demo requests, right? We want to create more on-ramps for people into the product. I think what we found as we looked at the data set pretty early on is there are a lot of folks that are using Hopin for events under 100 attendees. They'll do it once or twice a year. And in general, we made a decision, we should just give them the software for free. And so that's sort of what paved the way for the free product to say that, hey, this is more of the transactional type of of business or transactional type of engagement with us. Let's go ahead and and deliver that value for free. The second portion you mentioned, starter and growth, being our self-serve motion. A lot of folks don't want to talk to sales. They don't want to talk to SDRs. They want to get into the product and they've got an event coming up and they want to get started. So we want to obviously allow for that and, and give folks that as an option. We believe that there's a higher an elevated experience we can create if uh, there is a human involved. And so selfishly, we definitely think quite intentionally about the the sales-led motion. So the the two kind of skews on the far right of the page. And that's where we're going to get the ability to sell the vision for what it is we're building, really understand the customer, understand their goals from an event perspective, and make sure that this we can take a value-selling motion and, and ensure that we're positioning the breadth of the portfolio, perhaps, and not just something that they would onboard into directly from the website. So I think marketing has a role to play across all three of these, but certainly as folks get involved with our sales organization, with with the SDRs and all that type of thing, I think we're able to do a lot more listening and, and do a design a process that will both educate them on best practices and all these types of things and also get them into the right product moving forward. So obviously events have always been a, a staple of of marketing, of demand mm-hmm. for our audience, many of which are B2B or enterprise type marketers. It's our bread and butter, right? We we know that events are going to be the thing that not only drives a lot of pipeline, but also makes sales happy, candidly. Yeah. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They like doing that stuff and they like talking to people and and this is going to help that. You as someone who is sitting at the intersection of events, or I should say at the cutting edge of events, but at the intersection of events and marketing, how are people using the platform? How has this changed over the past 18 months? Yeah, the reality, the cultural reality we were living in for the last 18 months has been one of, we can't meet in person, right? And so the the inspiration that guided the product team and as we were building this was, how can we bring the best of the in-person experience online? rather than all of us watching a Zoom call all day, right? What can we do to make it more immersive and interactive and inclusive, obviously, to all these different folks who otherwise wouldn't have been able to attend in person? So those were sort of the the design principles that went into the product and something that that we take really seriously. But I think, especially for demand marketers, there's, I would imagine, three different use cases of, of, of how folks use the product. 
one, you might find that you're exhibiting on Hopin. So we have this concept of an expo hall. And obviously, a big part of these trade shows are exhibiting, doing demos, engaging the attendees, getting the attendee list from your sponsorship. And so that's one point of interaction that you would have with Hopin is on the sort of digital show floor. That's like if Caspian was to do an event, I don't know, the DGV Summit, we invite a bunch of marketers, we use Hopin, we sign up with our credit card on the website. And then one of the sponsors is qualified because they're our sponsor. So if qualified was to sponsor our event, basically you're saying that they would interface with Hopin's technology to, to be a sponsor. That's right. They would have a booth. They would be able to do a live conversation just like this. They'd be able to do a demo if that's what they wanted. They'd be able to do a magic show at the booth. I don't know, uh, bring in a, <laughs> a celebrity guest, whatever the case is, to, to stand out at the digital show floor, as well as collect leads and all the good stuff that that comes from participating at a, at a trade show. So totally, that, that that's exactly what that would look like. Another one that I imagine is field marketing. So how do we do more of the intimate experiential type stuff, but also do it for either active pipeline or for customers and try to either accelerate that pipeline to to close or drive some type of renewal or expansion outcome as a result. And so this this is sort of the steak dinners of the past, which I think love steak dinners. I think it's a role for those moving forward too. But we've seen customers do things like a celebrity chef where they would send grocery kits to target prospects who would attend this event. And then a celebrity chef will do this experience right in the comfort of their own home or wine tasting. I've seen whiskey taste, like some really creative shared experiences that are put on the platform in order to help accelerate pipeline or drive a post-sales outcome. And then the third is the most traditional. And I know that I appreciate this sometimes lives in demand, other times in corporate or events or whatever, but the idea of doing a, a your own conference, what is your own event? So this sounds like in the example you just gave, this would be your conference and now switching roles where you're not exhibiting, but you're actually putting the show on. And I have found this over the years to be not just a great driver of brand, but actually a great demand driver as well. Because not only are you marrying your brand and your, your company with a movement that you're trying to create, so you're establishing some thought leadership in the market, you're engaging your community who are attending, whether they're your customers or your prospects or whoever they are. And then finally, you're able to hopefully nurture these folks, reach out to them, convert them into, into paying customers as part of it. So there's this sort of magic that happens when, you, when you're putting on your own conference. And I think that's more of, a, I would say, the principal use case that we see a lot of teams using Hopin for, but obviously the first to roll into that as well. The way that a lot of the CMOs and folks that we, we've had on this show, they have their big user conference they have once a year. They probably have a customer advisory board that they want to get together that maybe that's 20, 25 type folks that they want yeah. to get in and have some type of back in the day that would be whatever, going to Tahoe or doing a, a wine retreat or something like that. Yeah, yeah. Something really cool like that. They're doing some type of virtual, like a, a, a like lower down customer feedback type mechanism mm-hmm. where they're getting customers together in a, maybe a less formal way than like a, an advisory board, which is a lot more formal. They're yeah. also having their demand gen team who's running obviously a series of webinars and things like that. And the reason why I bring all this up is like, it feels like uh, we, we hear a lot of people and we're going to talk uncuttable budget items here in a second. We hear a lot of people say like, hey, webinars are still something that really works. And I, yeah. I'm curious 
as part of all of these different, like it feels like events is just so critical to the modern marketer and how different they all are and how many different use cases and the look and the feel of those starting to get a little bit more consistency from a technology standpoint. I'm curious, where is this going? Because it seems like these type of events are a lot more interesting than like your traditional, we're chucking a webinar out there. Yeah, totally, totally. Well, I think we do have an innate desire to get together in person. And so that I can appreciate that as from a health and safety perspective, the world opens up again, we're going to do that. We're going to get back together. And hopefully these events are going to bring in some of the technology that we've adopted in the, the season where we couldn't and connect those out to a, a digital audience. So again, many more people can participate and engage with your in-person event. However, you're, you're bringing up something that's really interesting that I believe that virtual events as the buzzword we've been using the last 18 months or so will stay. And they'll stay on because we found that to put these things on, it's a lot less effort than putting on a, a huge in-person conference. The bar operationally is much to attend is much lower. You don't have to book the flight, leave your family, pay the crazy amount of registration fees or whatever. And so you can actually drive a much wider audience and it becomes this experience for lack of a better word, but it's a shared one that that can happen digitally. So technology is sort of caught up with that in some extent. Now, the traditional webinar market was very different. To your point, it was typically you don't see any faces. Or if you do, there's small little avatars and the screen takes up 90% of, of, of the real estate. There's no interaction with the audience. If anything, there's a Q&A module or something, but it's not this active energy gathering thing. It's sort of like a view only window into somebody walking through a PowerPoint. And so I think what we've learned is perhaps there's a convergence coming here. Perhaps as we think about virtual events, replacing the bad rep that webinars have gotten in the past but they're much more immersive. We're using video to the best extent that we can. We have capabilities within platforms like Hopin for interactivity, for engaging the community, for translation and closed captioning and all the things that make it more accessible and awesome. All of these things can help breathe life into what otherwise is sort of a dying art with webinars. But your point is so valid, they drive demand. Even in their crappiest form that they were historically, they do drive pipeline. And it's something that, we have done historically at every company. And so now we're just rethinking it from an experiential perspective. We want to still deliver content. But we want to tap the community to help us deliver that content. We want to build the environment to make it immersive and interactive. And that's helped us drive the same sort of pipeline outcomes, but to do it in a way that's much more delightful and, and engaging for our audience. Well, yeah, I mean, and I know I'm preaching the choir on this, but as I was prepping for this episode, I was thinking, why would I ever do another webinar again in that same type of format when I could do something much more engaging. And I know that this is like, maybe it's the exact same thing and this is just a better webinar experience, or maybe I've just been burned by bad webinar software in the past or something like that. But the idea that it's like a webinar is an event. Totally. We just never really treated it that way. Yeah. The word webinar, it sort of evolved into a, a way for us to not say the word event and basically get away with lower production. And basically what we've figured out is one, the bar to produce great high quality content is much lower now because of, again, products like Hopin and and several others, but also 
the consumer expectation is around entertainment. It's no longer around the crappy slide by slide, whatever. We now are, our brains can't handle any more information. So we're naturally biasing towards the most engaging and entertaining and fulfilling and, and those types of things. And so with that, it's almost like it's got a bad brand reputation, that word webinar, but really it's an event. It's an experience and it's a shared one. It's not just one person talking to another person, but you're you're talking to a, a room, a group, a, a community of people that are gathered there to hear you. When I think that as you get into obviously things like AMAs and all that other stuff where the purpose of the event is about engagement. It's not just about the slides. It's like, yeah, if you if you want to read the slides, go check out these slides whenever you want to do that. But hey, if you want to come ask Anthony 50 yeah. questions about his whatever, then you can do that. Yeah. So yeah, I mean, it's just, it's exciting times because I think that stuff like Hopin is is really, so obviously the the future is just we're there now and to make sure that you have a high quality experience for any of those events that we had just discussed, your in-person events, your mm-hmm. your hybrid events, your your webinars, anything like that, there's there's just a lot of cool stuff that you can do if you have a good software that can make that experience a much more richer, deeper thing for your fans. Yeah, totally, totally agree. Okay, let's switch gears here to the playbook. This is what's great about sports. This is what the greatest thing about sports is. You play to win the game. Hello, you play to win the game. This is where you open up that playbook and talk about the tactics that help you win. What are your three channels or tactics that are your uncuttable budget items? All right, I got them. So I think the the highest order category for these things, I would file under a philosophy I have that in order to win in B2B marketing, you have to take brand seriously which historically has been, I can imagine some folks listening in your audience might roll their eyes because brand and B2B typically meant corporate marketing, which meant this is like whatever budget scraps go to the rest of the team after demand gets their budget to hit the number, right? This is like swag and the new logo or whatever. And it's, it's so much more. Brand is the, the sort of statement of why a company should pay attention to you or an audience, excuse me, should pay attention to your company what do you stand for? What is the change you want to see in the world? And how do you really leverage your different marketing channels, which I'll, I'll walk through in order to convict the market into action? Because people don't buy things functionally, which is a bit of a, a disconnection from, I think, what, what folks would, would consider. They buy things emotionally. And so if you can build an emotive brand, that could be the biggest demand gen tailwind you can possibly come up with. And a very scalable one, sustainable one too. So at the top of that to me is establishing some type of thought leadership and focusing on building thought leadership. So that means going beyond just positioning feature functionality. It means helping lead a conversation in the marketplace, whatever it is that your product stands for or seeks to build or disrupt from the ground up. And so a lot of this comes down to defining that. What is our point of view in the marketplace? How are we different than the competition or Why is this a problem that no one's paying attention to and needs to pay attention to? And so establishing that positioning, if you will, that thought leadership is a big and I think very helpful starting point. The second is content marketing. Content marketing is the fuel for everything. Unless we're able to build a repeatable content motion that helps us drive our SEO, 
capability that helps us educate our prospects or existing customers on around whatever it is that we're solving. That is the, I think, the fuel that makes the engine work at the end of the day. And so things like podcasting, which obviously is close to your guys' heart, we can go beyond the traditional blog post here and, and think about content truly as a media company. Every company needs to start acting like a media company or risk going out of business, pure, plain, and simple. And when the cookie-less future that we're all staring down comes to light, the companies that survive are the ones that caught this early and were able to start investing and building their own content moat around the business. And then the third one is the community. You can have the most convicting thought leadership platform. You could drive a ton of content into the world, but unless your community is consuming that and saying it back to you, like, yes, this resonates. Yes, I believe the thing you're saying, then it's sort of all for naught. And so that shows up in many ways. If I can bring up the funnel, shows up in are people enrolling in our database? Are they engaging with our content? Are folks going from being fans to prospects? Are those prospects converting? So there's that component of community. But then, of course, the people that attend your events, that listen to your, your podcasts and, and consume your content in general, your customer community, obviously. And so I think all products at the end of the day are on a, and this is very biased, I appreciate, on a path to commoditization. Every, if you're going to play a spreadsheet war, a feature war, there's, it, it's just going to the inevitability. And so the true moat around the business that you want to build over time is be the market leader, which sort of aligns to the first one, educate the market on best practices, which is the second one. And third, have a community of people that validate you as the market leader. And if you can do those three things right, the demand side is, is mu a much easier proposition, not easy, but a much easier proposition than otherwise would be. So what are the investments that you would make into brand? Well, I think the first part is taking the time to articulate it the right way. So we don't want to come up with a brand positioning that's disconnected from the reality of the company or that is not authentic or whatever. So I think there's some work that needs to happen early on to help define what that what that story is. And I say early on, you know, for a lot of companies, this might be frankly further down the road when they've had great product market fit, they've been off and running, but now they want to build that bigger story. So this can look at many different ways for many different companies. For us, we've worked with a brand agency, which is a non-trivial amount of expense to go through that project. For us, we're working on a, a redesign and visual identity. How can we take that story and visually articulate it across our website and all of our different digital surfaces? So those are the types of things I would say that are investments one can make on the brand side, activating that too, right? We did a video where we told the story of the brand and, and all that sort of stuff. On the content side, it's everything from production. So whether that's in-house teams, whether it's it's contractors, whether it's agencies, across the entire media landscape from writers to podcast producers to video folks, whatever the case may be. So I think depending on where you're at in your life cycle, it makes a lot of sense to work with great partners who are subject matter experts than in-housing everything. And then on the community and event side, go all in on a product called Hopin. And I think that's all you No, I'm kidding. But you should. But also, I think there is in-house event teams very similarly, but also agency partners that can put on events. If you're not an event expert, you don't have that in-house skill set, that shouldn't stop you because there's a lot of folks that can make a lot of the decisions around 
either platform or location or food and beverage or all, all those fun things. But you can sort of keep the focus on the why are we doing this? We're doing it because we want to engage our community. We want to introduce this new product, whatever the case is. How do you think about investing in content? It sort of depends. So we're, we're going through this now. I think my broader philosophy is you can never have enough content people. So what I'm tempted to say is it's almost like the SDR rule where this is always on type of rec that's always on the website so long as the, the budget can stomach it and you're always looking for great content people. The truth is, depending on where you are, it might make sense to bring in contractors. There's a great contractor like market out there for folks that contribute to a lot of different properties where they'll learn your brand voice and all that fun stuff and be able to produce great content for you. Sometimes what's helpful about that approach is that you're actually getting experts in your industry to contribute to your blog, which is is helpful versus just having it all be like staff writers basically in-house. So I think there's many different things. There's also many different types of content, right? There's the yeah. SEO technical content, growth focused content. I think there's a subset of how you staff and think about those roles. There's the editorial type of content and telling the culture beat and the, the industry beat. And then obviously specialists across different mediums like podcasting and others. So it varies for, for each company. But I think that the broader approach is you can never be pushing enough content. And especially if you look across all channels and all the topics, it really is going to be the fuel for, for how you're going to grow the company. So I think it's important to prioritize an investment there. How do you view your website? The website has several purposes. We actually had to make a take a stronger position on this of late because I think there's three kind of competing voices in the website, maybe several others. Actually, there are several others, but three that stand out even just within marketing. The first is it's our number one demand gen surface. It's a product in that way, right? It's how we grow the company today. And obviously, we're looking to diversify and come up with different ways of doing that through outbound and all these types of things. But inbound marketing is such a core part of how we grow that there's a big focus there. And that's a key role that the website plays for us. There's the product marketing story that suggests we got to tell the platform story. We've got to be able to position the different products and use cases and solutions and verticals and all these types of things and ensure that we have content, but also context on the site that's relevant for any visitor, regardless, so long as they're obviously within our, our target ecosystem. And the third is brand. We've spent a lot of time in my, my time here so far building the Hopin brand. How do we show up? What's the visual look and feel of the site? What's the language in the, in the H1, all that type of stuff? So we have to make a decision. All right, so where does it live? Does it live in demand? Does it live in brand? Does it live in product marketing? And we decided that it has to live in demand, at least for us in our world. And it's not to say that the brand marketing components aren't radically important and important inputs, but ultimately we have to play this thing like it's a product. We have to run it like it's a product and we have to be very careful when we push anything to production and it has to be tested and ensure that we're not going to break anything for from our underlying tech stack that is all built on top of the website or underneath. So our decision was it is a demand gen surface first and everything else second. I think I'm preaching to the choir or I hope I am in saying that. Oh yeah. I mean, yeah, of course. <laughs> okay. Let's get to our next section, the dust up. Uh-oh. Here comes trouble. You may have heard 
that there was a dust-up involving yours truly. And now we've got a wild scrum with fights breaking out all over the place. And it is getting really ugly as we've got punches and kicks. This is where we talk about healthy tension, whether that's with your boards, your sales teams, your competitors, or anyone else. Have you had a famous or memorable <laughs> dust-up in your career, Anthony? Yeah, and, and not honestly, not at Hoppin yet. I mean, I've been here not too long uh, at this point, yet. but no. <laughs> yes, yeah, it is inevitably coming, I'm sure. But much has been written on the marketing sales alignment, right? And our ability to build relationship with our, our friends in sales. And I've been on both sides of, of this, meaning there have been seasons of unbelievable partnership and incredible collaboration and great feedback going back and forth. And there have been times, there have been dust-ups, as you say, where there's been a little bit of us versus them, our data versus yours, that sort of thing. There are sort of two things we've learned through that process, or I've learned through that process. The first is, if you're in front of the board or the CEO, and it's marketing's data versus sales perspective point of view, marketing loses. Even if you can prove it in the data, but sales has a point of view, sales will win that argument or win that decision, whatever the case is in the eyes of the CEO. And you could spend hours meditating on that and trying to figure out if it's fair or if it's right or whatever, but it just is. And it's been that way at every single company uh, forever. So my takeaway from that, and it was the second thing is marketing has to operate from a place of servant leadership for sales. And this is actually quite controversial because not everyone agrees with this. They're like, well, yeah. sales isn't always right. And like, you might be right, but in the court of public opinion within the organization, they will be. And so what it comes down to is if we're taking a servant leadership position, we don't win unless they win at the end of the day, pure and simple. And so over-investing in the relationship and bringing them on board, doing the hard work of winning the hearts and minds, establishing that partnership up front, all of that sort of stuff, not going into any meeting, certainly any cross-functional meeting where you're not aligned on the message you're bringing in the meeting. Those types of things may feel like overhead, but they go so far in establishing, A, establishing the relationship and a good working kind of you know dynamic, but beyond that, showing the rest of the company that marketing and sales are on the same page so massively important and pays dividends far beyond the the small piece of humble pie we, we might have to eat in realizing that that's just sort of the the law of nature in startups. So that's where it's at. I think at the end of the day, it's made me more of a sales-driven marketer in general. I just happen to love salespeople and, and spending time with them. And I, again, I know that may not be everyone, but I've gained a lot more appreciation for what we do on the demand and revenue marketing side of the business and spending a lot of time with sales. Let's get to our final segment, quick hits. These are quick questions and quick answers, just like conversational marketing, conversational sales and marketing with qualified, qualified prospects are on your website right now. And you can talk to them quickly with qualified, go to qualified.com to learn more quick and easy, just like these questions. Anthony, are you ready? I'm ready. Let's do it. Number one, if you weren't in marketing, what do you think you'd be doing? I would be in some type of sports business, the business side of sports. Who's your favorite team? The Los Angeles Lakers. Hands down. That's unfortunate. <laughs> I'm a Warriors fan. I know. <laughs> if you could have one person in the history of the world 
join us for our next episode of Demand Gen Visionaries together, who would it be? Well, since we're staying on theme, Kobe Bryant. Oh, man, that would be fun. Mm -hmm. That guy would have a lot of thoughts on marketing. That is for sure. Oh, yeah. Uh, Oh, yeah. What advice do you have for a first-time CMO trying to figure out their marketing strategy? Spend a lot of time meeting with other marketing leaders. This is an industry that loves to give back and loves to spend time sharing their thoughts and sharing their their learnings and all that sort of stuff. And it's never typically a bother. So I would definitely spend time uh, reaching out, reaching out to others. Anthony, that's it. That's all we got for today. Thanks so much for joining. Awesome chatting with you. And for our listeners, go to hopin.com. Check it out if you're doing an event. I mean, you can sign up for free. Just go do it. Go go do your first one and check them out. It's a super awesome product. And Anthony, we're excited to follow along. Awesome. Thanks for having me on. Any final thoughts? Anything to plug? No, excited to be a part of the show and definitely reach out on on Twitter, LinkedIn per per your last question, if if I can help at all. And look forward to seeing, seeing the great things to come from this community. Awesome. Take care. Thanks. Demand Gen Visionaries is brought to you by our friends at Qualified.com, a conversational marketing company that's on a mission to transform the way B2B companies sell. Go to Qualified.com to learn more.